On the Empire Podcast this week, we climb into a carapod with side series director Ben Wheatley. We tell Jake Gyllenhaal we wish we could quit him. We have great expectations of our chat with legendary producer Stephen Woolley. We review the latest films. We discuss the latest film news. And we sit around and stare at each other for uncomfortably long periods with absolutely nothing to say to each other. Luckily, we cut those bits out. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and you're listening to the Empire Podcast, the only movie podcast that is right now wearing a hideous Christmas jumper. You can verify this, can't you? That is it? true. It is a hideous Christmas jumper. Explain why. Um, well, we, we we got a Christmas photo taken earlier, you know, mm-hmm. for the delight and delectation of any, anyone who knows us, and in, indeed many who don't, uh, and we all wore Christmas jumpers for them, and you are still wearing yours for some reason. It's warm, and also it has a snowman on it. Is that snowman smoking a crack pipe? It is, yeah. I, cause this is one something I've been wanting to do for a long, long time have an Empire Christmas photograph or a postcard and we send it out to our friends and hated enemies and and I always wanted to have a sort of Faldunigan type pipe and rocking chair <laughs> uh, set up but sadly we were just standing in front of a white background yeah we don't have the money for a, a Valdunigan style background snowy no, background we can't even afford Valdunigan that's how hard <laughs> up we are uh, anyway time to introduce the Empire colleagues at whom I, I do like to stare uncomfortably while wearing a Christmas jumper uh, you've heard her already First up is a lady who would blanch if you described her as a queen of the geeks, but that's only because she's an anti-monarchist, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And also because I believe you're actually the prime minister of the geeks, yeah. uh, running unopposed for a second term very, very soon, and mysteriously anyone who runs against her seems to die in, in strange and horrible circumstances. It is, of course, Helen O'Hara. Hello, that's just a coincidence. It, nothing's been proven. <laughs> you might think that, but I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, next up is a man whose love of art house and arcane cinema is so entrenched that he's currently working on five crockpot theories about the making of Room 237. It's Phil Dissemblian. How are you? Very well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, good? Yeah. Wait, what's crackpot theory number one? Um... <laughs> <laughs> So what, what, I've, what I've done there is I've written a joke about you and then and then you've asked me to come up with a punchline I know <laughs> why don't I just go outside and <laughs> throw myself into the road for you as well um, great, I don't yeah. know the answer I don't even remember what the question was I don't, I don't remember either uh, and last but not least we have the hip and young groover of the podcast team a man who uh, do you know who Faldunigan is Ali Plum um, isn't he no no he was in the cantina in Star Wars so Star what Star Wars oh yes I like the Star Wars with the Chris Pine he's the, he's the best Star Wars huh? yeah 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 um, exactly rock on <laughs> rock on <laughs> okay now we're settled in we can begin with your questions and comments once again death threats and nude photographs have been artfully left out the death threats get burned of course the nude photographs are filed away in a special safe in my flat the first question comes from the world of Twitter and at MJV underscore racing I do like a catchy Twitter name who asks what do you think of the Hobbit release in HFR high frame rate mm. and are you looking forward to watching it in this format I'm intrigued to see how it looks uh, Brian Singer tweeted after going to the New Zealand premiere that yeah. uh, that he has frame rate envy and uh, I hope maybe we shall all have frame rate envy uh, by the time we see it wow I yeah. hear Peter Jackson says 48 Gosh, most Brian people Singer's only have only a twenty-four. 24. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this, this is this is becoming quite puerile already. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting because they they, they screen some footage from the uh, at the uh, what's it called these days? It's called CinemaCon in Las Vegas. It used to be called Show West. Now it's called CinemaCon, and they they had some people come out and see some footage earlier on in the year, and there were decidedly mixed reactions mm. to the HFR uh, Hobbit footage. Some people said it was amazing. It's like removing a window between yourself and uh, what's happening in the. In the cinema other people say it's too realistic and also it has some of that blur you get on on tvs when they they get the frame rate wrong 
Hmm. I thought the point of it was to get rid of the blur no, and, the, and the strobing and the. Maybe they just hadn't calibrated the, the settings right. Maybe they just yeah. put yeah. it going to the TV and go way around. Yeah. Some, I mean, some people were talking about a sort of almost like a soap opera effect, like you get on a badly calibrated uh, HD TV. Yes. Um, but I mean, hopefully, if the cinemas know what they're doing, and there are so few cinemas that have it, that one would hope that those have also invested in you know the training book, uh, that that it will be good. I know. Also, we, we, we've spoken to some directors. Neil Blomkamp, for example, mm. uh, said it's not for him. Well, fair so, point. So we shall see. We shall see indeed. Uh, next up is a question from at Janitor Tiernan, who asks, in tribute to Paul Thomas Anderson, that's discussing something we had in the podcast a couple weeks ago, what's your favourite lengthy tracking shot, Mines Through the Fuji Camp in Children of Men? Oh, that's a really good one. Is that it? Is that the one? Yeah, let's just stop it there. No, I'm kidding. Um, of course, there's the, the famous one in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm, through the Copacabana awesome. nightclub. Through the Copacabana nightclub. Um, yeah, I don't know, otherwise. Touch, touch the beginning of Touch, of, touch of, evil. of Evil is obviously masterful. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All of Russian Ark. <laughs> all of Russian Ark. The, the whole, whole of Silent House. The whole, the whole 90 minutes of Russian Ark are essentially one big long tracking <clears throat> shot. There's an amazing shot. I mean, I, I, I think we were talking about The Master a couple of weeks ago, and it's not a hugely lengthy shot, but I, I think we were talking about one of the things I found slightly disappointing about the film is that the, the bravura camera moves of P.T. Anderson uh, from his early movies, certainly by Boogie Nights Magnolia, has been subsumed slightly by this much more controlled filmmaker and he keeps the camera very static and steady and plays out scenes and long shots a lot of the time but there's an amazing scene uh, you probably remember it as well Phil when uh, um, when um, Freddie is walking towards the boat and we see Lancaster Dodd and his wife on this boat for the first time and it's just this wonderful shot that tracks with him and then just somehow manages to pick out almost as if by accident Lancaster Dodd and Emmy Adams as his wife mm. and then it goes back to Freddie again and he gets back onto the boat and I was just thinking wow I would just wish that this shot uh, there was more of this in this movie, mm-hmm. and I, w- I would love it a bit but more. But it's, qu- it's quite a consciously classical it is, yeah. piece of filmmaking, oh, as we discussed yes. before, and it absolutely it was designed is. For, for that kind of static camera. But you're right, that's a fast, amazing, very rare that filmmakers use the periphery of the frame in that way. Mm. You know, where they, one of the two major characters in the film is introduced as a blur to start with. Yes. That was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though, with tracking shots, because they're often, they can be showy sometimes, and, you know, there would be people that would argue that Joe Wright's shot in atonement yeah. on the beach it, it's a great showpiece but I mean he he would put he said himself that he put that down to expediency that they didn't have the time and the money to set up all the individual shots to get enough of an impression of the beach in a sort of montage yeah and that the tracking shot in that case he felt was a matter of expediency that they were able to do two or three takes get it mm. and move on Possibly he there might be a he claimed he, he claimed also but he he's also responsible for a great tracking shot fight in uh, Hannah Hannah that's great <laughs> yeah. I love the that subway one. fight sequence with, with Eric Banner um, as a huge uh, Sam Raimi fan uh, he's a man who loves his, his tracking shots although not as much as his crash zooms and Dutch angles <laughs> um, but uh, you know as a huge Evil Dead fan I love the idea because it's also tied to story and it's also tied to the character of the film the idea that the evil POV shots with the, the camera rampaging through the cabin there's an amazing shot in Evil Dead 2 where the, the evil start to chase Bruce Campbell uh, as Ash uh, through the forest and the camera follows him through the forest into the cabin and you have Bruce Campbell shutting the door on the evil the evil smashes through doors and is just chasing through the cabin uh, when you watch it again and again you keep thinking well there's a moment where the evil could have caught him there Oh, but that was probably because the cameraman got his tape cable tangled and he couldn't do it in the end. <laughs> but it's just an amazing, amazing sequence. And uh, I love I love Sam Raimi. 
The love that dare not speak its name has finally spoken. No, wait, that was a few weeks ago with the whole Jeff Boucher. Oh, don't start that again. I'm over Boucher now. Uh, at Lee underscore Carwash uh, asks, what's your favourite MacGuffin in any movie? Jeff MacGuffin, surely. He's my favourite. For those who don't know what a MacGuffin is, Helen MacGuffin. It's the thing that everybody in the movie wants that makes the movie go. Mm. It doesn't of itself need to do anything or be anything. Yeah, so so it's stuff like the Maltese Falcon is a MacGuffin. Oh, in Star Wars. Um, well, in yeah, sure. Is that the yeah. one I've seen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Phil and I were having a discussion about this earlier, about what a MacGuffin is. Is a MacGuffin the thing that actually powers the whole film? Or is it just the thing, like in Skyfall, for example, the names of, you know, the data mm. of the people who have been, um, you know, lost by Bond in Istanbul, the other spies? It just drops out after the first act. It's not relevant anymore. It just gets the ball rolling. Mm-hmm. Or is it like the Ark of the Covenant, which is essentially the story of the film? You follow it throughout. It begins and ends the movie. I mean, for Crystal Skull as an example, I had this argument with my brother as well. It's it's quite integral to the plot and the story. It is obviously a thing that drives yeah. it, but it becomes part of the fabric of the actual narrative, and it's the final act. You know, denouement. Mm. Whereas the Sankara stones are definitely a MacGuffin. Whereas the suitcase in Pop Fiction... Is a MacGuffin. I agree with you. The more I think about it, the more I agree with you. For example, the One Ring uh, is not... I mean, that's a distinct part of the plot. It affects people. It's a character-changing device. It's not just a... Yeah. You know, a tool. So with that in mind, I guess what I would suggest as an example would be the Allspark is one. Ah, the Allspark. But it does something at the end. I guess it does, doesn't it? This is my problem, is that I would say that is, because I it think- is just nonsense, and then it does a thing. <laughs> the Hitchcock and Lucas had different opinions on this, don't they? Mm. And people would argue that the Death Star in itself is not a MacGuffin, but the plans of the Death Star the Death are Star. a MacGuffin. Yeah. yeah. But I guess everyone might have different opinions. There doesn't seem to be a hard and fast rule. It, it could, you know... Yeah, the- I think what we're... Cl- what we're- very fast discovering is that there's no one definition <laughs> of a MacGuffin which makes the whole rest of this conversation booby-trapped. Yes, and they all live happily ever after. <laughs> there is a correct answer, though, to the best one, which is the loom of fate from one to <laughs> But that absolutely affects everybody No, that's, that's just guff. That's hey. not, that's there. Thank you, thank you. Anyway, um, here's one from at Mojo Cola. That's a, oh, some great names this week. Uh, with Les Mis coming out soon, what is your favourite movie musical? Brought this up maybe three or four times. I know this because I edit the buggers, but we always mention <laughs> Singing in the Rain. Bang, so just Singing in the Rain <laughs> is the correct answer, yes. My favourite would be Little Shop of Horrors. I think that's the interesting thing about musicals is that there is the best one, Singing in the Rain, but everyone has their favourite, which may or may not be Singing in the Rain. (laughs) But should be. I don't know if I own a movie musical. (gasps) It's South Park bigger, longer (laughs) and uncut. That was almost a moment. That was 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 completely unrehearsed. We come in peace. (laughs) We bring you love. I was literally expecting all three of you to burst a song. You don't like musicals. (laughs) But seriously, you must have some like secret ones that you don't realise are musicals. Well, as you know, I do have all my films in my collection sort of my phone so I can take a look um, but I whilst you're doing really that yeah. talk amongst yourselves and tell what, what about up? Disney movies have you got you know Beauty and the Beast there or? yeah but I don't consider those to be musicals oh, but, but I do are. wait if you have to look it up how much do you really love it come on well a lot because I've got a really bad memory book? what <laughs> yeah, the Jungle Book the Jungle Book I see again okay this is where we're getting the, the, the big discussion here I don't consider that to be a musical yes it's got great songs in it yes it was the first film that ever made me cry uh, yes uh, I have the soundtrack yes I'm wearing a t-shirt but is it a musical I don't think so 
It totally is. Why? Just because well, the song's in it? For Come example, on, no, Beauty and the Beast, for example, has been made into an actual Broadway musical, uh-huh. right? Yeah, without any, not the same thing. No, yeah, well, but without any significant changes to anything, really. Um, so it must be a musical on film, because otherwise that wouldn't be logical. Ergo, a films with similar amounts of songs must also be musicals. Ergo, The Jungle Book is a musical. I thank you. Okay, but uh, it's a cartoon, so I'm going to talk about live-action musicals. Why? Okay, for the sake of this question, for the yeah. sake of okay, sanity, fine. let's say live-action musicals. Live-action musicals. Uh, is Apocalypse Now a musical? <laughs> there is a deleted Miss Saigon scene. is a musical, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. Oh, I did buy recently uh-huh. The Wizard of Oz. There you go. And that's a musical. Okay, then. Big time. Commando Director's Cut. Thanks again for your questions. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter at Empire Magazine. That's our name. Uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook, Empire Magazine, or you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. And now it's time for last week's competition, which offered you the chance to win one of five, count them, five Blu-ray copies of Annie, which I believe is a musical. It is. And therefore, Hooray. I'm going to destroy it. Uh, the ridiculously easy question was, when does the sun come out? The answer was, of course, tomorrow. Thank you. And the winners are Graham Denman, Dean Ford, Ben White, Graham Samuel Gibbon, and Tim Harris. Congratulations to you all. Amazing stuff. Uh, coming up, we have a lovely non-musical interview with that there, Stephen Woolley. But first, some uncomfortable staring. Stephen Woolley is one of Britain's best producers, a former distributor with Palace Pictures in the 1980s. He moved into producing with the Company of Wolves in 1984, and along the way has racked up a series of films that are compelling, challenging, and never dull. They include the likes of The Crying Game, Interview with the Vampire, Stoned, and now his adaptation of Great Expectations, directed by Mike Newell, starring Jeremy Irvine, Ray Fiennes, Helena Bottom Carter, and Holiday Granger. Fans of our Fiddy Bloggy-sodes, and I know you're out there, may remember a regular canned video diary sequence called Woolly on the Web. Well, think of this as Woolly on the Pod, and he was talking to me and Phil. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by an old friend of Empire. It is the producer of Great Expectations, Mr. Stephen Woolley. Uh, now, you've got about two days at the time of talking, Stephen, yeah. before the movie opens. So what are your expectations like at the moment? Are they great? Are they, are you, are you worried? Are you, do you get nervous at this point before a film Yeah, I get, I get really nervous and I, and I there's nothing I can do to control it, really. I mean, I, I, I suppose a film like this, which is seemingly appealing to quite an old audience, um, mm-hmm. Uh, end of the affair also had a very old audience and they're actually so strange with the Maiden Dagenham so uh, you know I, I, I think of myself as someone who is sort of making films for a young audience and um, you know started off as I did all those years ago making sort of slightly you know musicals like Absolute Beginners and films for you know the sort of the 18 to 25 audience um, I still think of that audience as being the people that will go and see our films, but I, I suppose now the audience is probably more up, more up my age, mm-hmm. um, and the twenty five plus, the thirty five plus, the forty five plus. <laughs> stop there. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there. Um, but you know, I, I, and so you know, that audience is 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 a strange breed these days. You know, they're mm-hmm. not necessarily critic driven. No, you know, the critics are seemingly. Um, the film like Salmon Fishing in the Yemen or mm-hmm. uh, Marigold was a very high demographic and uh, an older demographic and they were highly successful films and didn't get great critical reviews although I was very very pleased last night that we got a great review uh, on uh, Radio 4 on you know uh, Front Row and um, 
you know, uh, uh, Claudia Winkleman likes it. Mm. I think that Mark Mode likes it. You know, I think, I think, <laughs> I think we're getting nice reviews. I like it. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. You liked it. Great. I like it. And so, we, you know, we're getting some good reviews and that's, that's good. And it's playing at 430 screens, which mm-hmm. is a very, very wide release. Um, and yeah, it is, it, it's incredibly nerve wracking. I, I think that, you know, there, there are so many films released in a year, but there are so few films that are British movies that are released on this level, this level of release, you know, 430 screens is just about as wide as you can go yeah. without being a big blockbuster. So Lionsgate are releasing the film, I've put a lot into it. So um, in a sense, you know, it's the combination of, um, you know, two or three years hard work trying to make something that will be um, that rarest of, of movies, which is a high quality mainstream British film. And it's, you know, it's it's a difficult one, and I and I'm quite proud of the fact that Maiden Dagenham was that thing, and How to Lose Friends and Alienate People was also that thing. Um, a, you know, a populist British film that yeah. that, that uh, you know, regardless of how it does outside of the UK, um, you know, has a home here, has a, a place here, um, and doesn't necessarily have to win all the BAFTAs and and be Oscar nominated in order to get um, people to like it and to appreciate it. Um, you know, so. You know, a, short, a very long answer to your question is yes. I'm very <laughs> nervous. Mike kindly came in earlier in the year and talked to us on the podcast um, about one of his favourite movies, Grand Illusion, and he was also talking about his experiences on Prince of Persia. And reading between the lines, that was perhaps not his... I don't know, not the job he's loved the most. In fact, he kind of said that in so many words. Yeah. And I wondered if, you know, obviously Jerry Bruckheimer does what he does and, and the way he does it, um, and the results are there. You're a very different producer, I'd imagine, to work with. Did you ever think of flying in by helicopter to alarm Mike on set or <laughs> having any Jerry Bruckheimer <laughs> moments? No. I just, I, but more seriously, do you, do you, how do you work with directors as a producer? Do you have a particular kind of ethos in the way that you, you collaborate or does it vary from, because Neil, you've worked with for many films now. Yeah, is it different? I, um, it's, it is different from film to film and director by director to director, I suppose. I mean, I, I think I, as a producer, a bit, a bit like Jerry Bruckheimer in a way, um, and probably this is the only only similarity with 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 the Bruckheimer Simpson oeuvre and the films <laughs> I've made. But I do develop myself and my producing partner Elizabeth Carlson and I develop films together. Um, there's probably only been a handful of films where I've been a gun for hire. Um, Interview of the Vampire, mm. the most the highest budget film I, I've I've produced was really a movie that uh, that was developed uh, by David Geffen and Anne Rice originally before Neil Jordan and I came on board. But generally, um, if you look back on on the films I've made, right from Mona Lisa and the Crying Game and Company of Wolves through to um, everything I've made in the last twenty thirty years, I mean they've all been films I've developed myself. Mm-hmm. So the um, sometimes that is with a director writer and sometimes it's 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 with just with the writer so you know the process of um, that organically gives you a very strong hand in what is being made so your partnership with the director already is one of teamwork mm-hmm. you're both out for the same thing as it were um, and, the, and it becomes pretty apparent whilst you're shooting if that isn't the case so um, I think if you're very clear about the eventual goal, then your relationship with the director is 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 often very harmonious and and clean. Um, what muddies the water uh, is invariably like life itself, money. 
mm. money always muddies the water and whether it's um you know money for a new a new extension to the house <laughs> or money to for another week of shooting it's that which 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 can drive a stake mm. between a director and a producer which is the un, which is the um <clears throat> illusion of 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 there being a some kind of you know what a big huge uh, cachet of money that you can just draw from <laughs> yeah. so generally I think if you're going for the same thing and you're on the same side it's really how do you get to that uh, you know elusive mm. um, the, the elusive holy grail how do you find it how do you work towards it um, and that's where you're working with it right? so, I mean I have been sadly on films where you know halfway through you, your director will turn to you and say something and um, it happened actually on Rage in Harlem a film that we shot in Cincinnati which is based on a 1950s Chester Himes novel uh, and Ch Himes's work is an, it's an amazing body of work but um, aside from the first couple of early novels his, 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 his books are all comedies they're, they're sort of caper chase comedies mm -hmm. and so they're all set in Harlem they all have brilliant great Damon Runyon-esque characters and um, they're entirely set within the world of the Afro-American uh, 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 black community. Wonderful piece of work, but they're all comedies. They're all very funny. And I remember halfway through the shooting of this film, uh, we were looking at the rushes, and, and uh, I said to the director, "Wow, that didn't play as funnily as it did on the paper, did it?" And I always thought. It was, and he turned and said, "We're not making some goddamn comedy." <laughs> and my heart sank as I thought. Oh my God! I raised ten million dollars to make a comedy, and the director doesn't think he's making a comedy. I'm in serious trouble, mm. and actually, I was in serious trouble. <laughs> but it all worked out fine in the end. What did you do? Um, I, I think I cried for about an hour, and then I went back in the room and went, "Bill, we better have a talk about this. We are making, you know, it is funny." And then eventually, I realised what he was trying to say was this particular scene wasn't funny um, The End of an Affair is not an action film <laughs> yeah but that's, <laughs> it, that is uh, it, that's interesting I mean it, it, you know directors are often their motivation for why they take a job on or why they want to make something can be somewhat cloudy and you have to really as a producer you have to hammer home we're all on the same team this is why we want to do this this is why we love this um and in a sense, you know, I mean, my golden rule as a producer is always never tell a director where to put the camera, ever, because mm -hmm. that's kind of why you hire them. And also um, never talk to the actors about their motivation or what they should be doing with the scene. That's the director's job. He, the director, he or she should have absolute access to the actors uh, and the performance and absolute access to the camera crew and, and where and how the film is essentially made. That's why you're hiring that that man or woman um, but aside from that mm. almost everything else is a collaboration casting is a collaboration the editing is a collaboration the choosing of a composer the score everything you're doing is a collaboration and of course the monetary constraints if you you know you have to finish at a certain time you have to finish at a certain time you know and that's where I think you know well, well, people talk about creative producers and I think that Elizabeth and I are creative in as much as we are able to engage with the writing process and uh, bearing in mind what we have at our disposal. Mm. What, how much can we bring to it? And that's what a creative producer has to do. Doesn't, a creative producer isn't somebody who goes off and just simply hangs out with the creatives, mm. the actors and the writers and the director. Uh, nor, you know, nor is, you know, you're doing that in order that you can 
bring the knowledge you have about what you, what resources you've got at your disposal and that's really what a creative producer has to do is be able to say okay what if we do cut this page then perhaps we can we, mm. can, we can shoot this instead or perhaps looking at the film so far what we can do is adjust stuff to to make up for what we may lose tomorrow if the sun comes out and starts <laughs> raining do you ever get a there's a sense also with a great success comes a, a great backlash as well for example it hasn't happened yet for Skyfall but it did happen for the King's Speech where people seem to once a film is on a pedestal they want to try and take it down did you ever find that with any of your films like The Crying Game for example once it was nominated for Oscars well The Crying Game's nominations for Oscars are the reason that people want to see it I mean it didn't really open that well in the UK um, there are two reviews um, that you, you have for a film there's ticket selling reviews and there's non-ticket selling reviews mm. there's no such thing necessarily as a good review and a bad review and for instance Alexander Walker um, the mm. Evening Standard critic who was so crucial to a film because the Evening Standard in those days was a was very, very important uh, publication it wasn't given out free at, at tube stations it was, <laughs> and it was really important if the Standard gave you a great review that was a big help to a film and he gave I think uh, I don't even know if there were stars in those days but if there were stars he gave zero stars um, and it was a, it was a shocking uh, a damn damning review of the film which which, which was which was a two page pull out review <clears throat> with a picture of Tom Cruise with his teeth sinking into a semi naked girl's neck and it's the headline was Parade of Perversion <laughs> and it actually singled me out in the review which really it said David formerly Dave Geffen made this film alongside Stephen formerly Steve Woolley and then said that David Geffen was part of some gay mafia and that I had made the crying game and that we had combined to make this parade of perversion. Now, I couldn't have written a review that would sell more tickets. If you say I'd watch that film. If you read that review, you'd think, geez, Louise, I've got to see this movie. Could it be that bad? What is Tom Cruise doing in this <laughs> What are they, my God, what is he doing in this picture? And that's called a ticket selling review now most most producers would be crying you know going oh my god we only got zero stars when it's underwater I was laughing like a hyena and I'd already written my letter back to Alex saying it's from Stephen I've always been called Stephen even my mum calls me Stephen you Alex can call me Steve I wrote a lovely letter back to him thanking him for his great review <laughs> um, but then you get a review where people are being kind and they'll say you know liked it didn't like this liked it didn't like this and you think this review is a waste of time this is not going to get anyone to go and see the movie it's a kind review and kind reviews can often be a turn off uh, in a way you want the radical you know you you want the 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 argument to start yeah and one of the great things about great expectations is that we had the tv version last christmas and yes that's created a big discussion about who's the best miss havisham <laughs> julian anderson <laughs> Or Helen the Bonacarta. Who's the best Magwitch? Is it Ray Winston? Is it is it Ray Fiennes? That, to me, is a great dialogue to have. That makes you need to go and see the film, even if you don't want to see the film, mm. because it means that you've got to have a discussion about it. So if your friend says, "Oh, I thought that the boy playing Pip in the movie version was so much better than the boy in the TV version," or, you know, Jeremy Irvine is much better. You know, you think, "Well, I better go and see that." So I can have an argument about it. I can say that my Estella, my ideal Estella is this person mm. and not Holiday Granger at all. It's my sister, <laughs> or my aunt. And I, I think films, it's better to have a film that stirs people up. Uh, and, and so you have a radical opinion 
than it is a film where everybody joins together in the middle and goes, yeah, I like it, because you know what? That's not going to sell tickets. Yeah. What's going to sell tickets is somebody telling you not to see a film. Looking at critics, I you know, I hope with great expectations that you know it pushes lots of people's buttons. And I am hoping, of course, the buttons that we love to press is the pleasure button that we hope people get a huge amount of pleasure from the film and enjoy Helena's wonderful performance of Miss Havisham and, and Jeremy Irvine's wonderful performance as Pip and get what we wanted from the film, which is to make a, a modern day... A, a, a version, a contemporary version of Great Expectations, but set during the time of Dickens, but told in a way that we hope Dickens would have been proud of. Mm. Dickens wouldn't have imagined that you could ever make a film like Great Expectations. I mean, he didn't know the film existed when yeah. he wrote the book, and he died 30 years before cinema was invented. Uh, although David Nichols is very keen on, and, and quite rightly on, reminding people that both Eisenstein and D.W. Griffiths were huge Dickens fans, and uh, and Eisenstein once wrote a paper about how Dickens wrote in a way that suggested cut a montage because mm. his insistence on action overlapping and I think Dickens would have uh, couldn't but whatever he would have imagined as the possibility of cinema um, I think he would have been really you know overjoyed at what Mike Newell has created with great expectations and I think that's you know that's the button we're hoping to press is the pleasure button um but if the button that we're not present is 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 the is the irate or anger button and <laughs> you know i'm just as happy with that really <laughs> okay fantastic well Stephen, i wish you the best of luck and yeah, oh, there's obviously tons of stuff to talk about with you but we haven't even touched on so hopefully you come back in for Byzantium when it opens in the spring Byzantium is opening in next uh, April May yes next April May brilliant so yeah. we'll uh, hopefully have you back hopefully in then see you then again thanks, thanks a lot thank you for more cheers Stephen. thanks bye Lovely Stephen Woolley, he'll be back. He'll be back. I hope so. He's yeah. a fascinating man. He is. Lots of great stories. Uh, okay, time to dissect the movie news with a sharpened movie scalpel. What have you got? Helen, what have you got? Well, just uh, very quickly, our regular Star Wars roundup. Um, people have been saying that Matthew Vaughn has been confirmed as uh, Star Wars Episode Seven director. Now, this would be seismic news if the confirmation didn't amount to something that Jason Fleming said on the red carpet. Or didn't say. Or didn't say. Um, so, I mean, while I would very much consider Matthew Vaughan in the running, mm-hmm. um, I I wouldn't say that this is in any shape or form confirmation just yet. At the time of recording, the director's seat remains open. Indeed. Although I'm sure it'll be filled one minute after this podcast goes live. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a man who said or didn't say something or mimed something or didn't mime something on a red carpet. Uh, and yeah, he might be in a good position to know if, Ma- if Matthew Vaughan is in a, in a decent place, but... Come on. Really? Come on. Really? We also reported this week, Mark Miller was saying that he's he's hopeful that Matthew Vaughan is actually going to do the Secret Service next. Uh, yes. So, you know, that may be the reason that, that maybe the next thing on his plate. Maybe. Although I imagine if you're going to drop the Secret Service, you drop it for Star Wars. Yes. You do that. Okay, so that's Star Wars out of the way. Done. One, mm-hmm. one new story every week until 2015. <laughs> <laughs> Ali? Well, I'm keen for this podcast not to just have a new section that's full of nerdy stuff like kind of geeky you know the usual suspects so I'm going to do the story of the Star Trek synopsis that's come online (laughs) Uh, thanks Ali I can can see the punchline coming yeah you liked it but you did it thanks anyway so yeah this is uh, I I could do it in the movie voice do you want me to try the movie voice no okay in summer 2013 pioneering director J.J. Abrams will deliver an explosive action thriller that takes Star Trek 
into darkness. Ooh. Ooh. So that's how that phrasing works. When the crew of the Enterprise is called back home, they find an unstoppable force of terror from within their own organisation has detonated the fleet and no. everything it stands for. I don't know what that means. Leaving our world in a state of crisis. With a personal score to settle, Captain Kirk leads a manhunt to a war zone world to a war zone world to capture a one-man weapon of mass destruction. What? As, as our heroes are propelled into an epic chess game of life and death, love will be challenged, friendships will be torn apart, and sacrifices must be made oh. for, dun, the, dun, dun. for the only family Kirk has left. His the crew. Waltons. His crew. His crew. His crew. Mm. That, that makes make more sense than yeah. what I said. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, what this means uh, is that... That that is happening. <laughs> that is happening. <laughs> Great. I um, wish I wish the news was like this every week, where someone just read out something and went said that. Basically, just what I just said. <laughs> that is it. And I moved on. That's what we've got. All right. So let the speculation begin. This this is clearly Benedict Cumberbatch they're talking about. Yes. Well, this is what you want to interpret from. Let me get this right. A one-man weapon of mass destruction. Could you could you see Benedict as that? I could. Smog in space. Yeah. 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 With the, the brains of Sherlock and the fire breathing capabilities of Smaug. 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 Then, yeah, he could give the Enterprise a run for his money. Does sound like a traditional Star Trek story. It doesn't sound like they're going totally. I don't know. Destroying most of Starfleet. That seems pretty. That's been raising done. the stakes. Yeah, but right at the beginning of the film, has that been well, done? Well, probably. I mean, I mean okay, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of the best yeah. of both worlds, part one. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'll just push my glasses up my nose and go and adjust my pocket protector mm-hmm. now. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds interesting because obviously they raised the stakes very high in the last one by destroying Vulcan, which nobody saw coming. No. So I think it's safe to say that. Least of all the Vulcans. Yeah, well, they, yes, indeed. Um, and yeah, I'm intrigued by this one. Yeah, me too. I, I want to know what this... I want to know what this epic chess game of life and death is. I hope it's actually chess. I really hope it's tridimensional chess. <gasps> that would be awesome. Can you imagine if they actually play chess and then that kind of plays out scenes in the film? Sacrifices. Mm. That's a word is used. And we know that in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, Spock sacrificed himself. Mm. Okay, yeah. well, I'll start crying. Maybe no. it'd be like... I have been and always shall be seal. your friend. Mm. Maybe there'd be a Bergman-esque twist. We'll see, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe... Sorry. Anyway, this Maybe is for will... you know diehard Trekkies uh, to join the very very distant dots with. So mm. have fun with that. Uh, check it out on our website, and you can try and extrapolate more. Extrapolate, extrapolate. Fantastic, Phil. What do you got? Brian Singer news. Ooh. Okay. X Men: Days of Future Past. Yeah. Has recruited uh, Serena McKellen yes. and Patrick Stewart. Oh yes. <clears throat> They're back. They're back, which is exciting news for anyone that loves any of those things, um, which is all of us. What's key here is that, uh, let me get this straight, that mm-hmm. there's a possibility that two Magnetos could appear on the screen at the same time. Yes. And, 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 Hugh Jackman. He's back in He's back in the fold. The Wolverine will be returning. And I don't know how much more we're going to see of him than we did in, in the last one, where he made but a cameo, albeit an amazing one. Yes, but the very fact they're announcing that he's in talks and they're announcing... We would think that it's going to be chunkier. Yeah. yeah. Which would be great. Because that, that, that uh, Wolverine appearance in... Uh, and X Men First Class was a big, big old secret uh, it was, for everyone. Yeah. And then when I visited the uh, the editing suite for our Empire cover feature, I walked in to interview Matthew Vaughn, and his uh, editor Eddie Hamilton had it uh, had a massive <laughs> monitor up, and he'd he'd you know paused paused it you know, as I came in, and it was a huge picture. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was Hugh Jackman as Wolverine from that scene, and I just mm-hmm. kind of went, "Oh, that's interesting." <laughs> off, 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 off. Where's the button? Where's the button? Oh God, he's seen it. It's too late. But I kept the cat in the bag. 
But that's a great use of the F-bomb in a 12A. An amazing use of the F-bomb. Possibly the best. Anyway, this is great for a number of reasons, but I was thinking, you know, they're in talks, you know, Hugh Jackman's in talks. Well, of course he's going to get this. I mean, I mean, who else are they going to get? I mean, who on earth could play this role? Well, I think they're not going to do Wolverine if he doesn't sign well, up, quite, I think, would yeah. be the answer to that question. I mean, it's interesting because, obviously, you know, Wolverine is in the comic version of uh, Days of Future Past. Um, he plays a particularly big role in the sort of future set segments of that comic. So he's he's kind of leading this sort of desperate slash diversionary attack on Sentinel headquarters in the future while, while Kitty Pride is trying to change things in the past. And obviously, it's not Kitty Pride in the film because she's not in this continuity um, I reckon it'll probably be Professor X possibly Magneto um, but they're obviously going to do some of that future stuff well, I suspect you never know you never know well I- if they're going to have um, Ian McKellen and uh, Patrick Stewart in it mm-hmm. there's going to be some future stuff but uh, do they go to the future do the, does the do the 60s guys go to the future do the future guys come into the 60s they've got to have scenes for the two of them together do they got, I don't know they, that yeah, they do absolutely have to I, I, I would be disappointed if they didn't quite frankly I would I don't almost think be disappointed if they did I don't think this is a straight adaptation of Days of Future Past I think they've just taken can't the title be. And, no I'm, I'm absolutely off. sure it isn't a straight adaptation given that the characters are completely different hmm. um, so I, I'm not saying it, oh my god they, they must obey comic continuity I just hmm. think that it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to have them in the same place at the same time but it'll be interesting to see what they do my concern with this and this is this is fantastic and it's great news and this is a film I was already excited about before the news of McKellen Stewart and and, uh, and Jackman is Jackman's mere presence as Wolverine I just hope it doesn't unbalance the film because I think these films the, the X-Men prequels should very much be Xavier Magneto movies and suddenly having Wolverine in the movies I mean look how unbalanced X-Men and Last Stand became because Hugh Jackman was a huge star by that point and so Wolverine always has to become front and centre of an X-Men movie so mm-hmm. they give a lot of stuff to him and they shunt the Professor X out of the way very early on in Last Stand so I hope that doesn't happen necessarily give Wolverine his stuff to do brilliant it's great that Jackman's doing it again I love his taking the character I love the fact that you know, unlike any other actor of recent times, really, he's dedicated to a character. He's going to play this character over and over and over again. I love that, but I just hope he doesn't. He doesn't get in the way. I don't of think that's ha- going to happen. Apart from anything else, they've got two really good actors playing each of the other roles. Yeah, they're not going to sort of throw those guys away. And also, it's not you know Brett Ratner directing this. No, true. I, I saw some people on Twitter last night going, "Does this mean that uh, Days of Future Past is going to retcon the X Men series so that?" Uh, Last Stand doesn't exist. Who knows? Who knows? I don't know. It doesn't. I'm, it, I'm okay I don't think that. it needs to be retconned necessarily. No. Wolverine kind of retcons it in his, in his, in his own well, way. Well, I mean, you know. you know, Ratner retconned it in his in his post credits bits and pre credit bits. You know, you've still got Magneto with his powers. You've still got a Professor X. Mm. So, how are we going to fit this into the Wolverine movie world? Well, that takes place post original trilogy, if you will, X Men. Mm. We're told so. Well, um, it doesn't really have to. As Mark Miller said, it takes place now. Mm. Wolverine takes place now, 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. So six years after the last stand. So I don't know when it's going to fit into a time. But, but obviously Wolverine in Days of Future Past is an older Wolverine. And mm-hmm. you know, Jackman, it, you know, he's aging quite gracefully, but he, he hasn't gotten any younger. So he, I don't think he can really play that Wolverine from the, the original X-Men. So it'd be fun to see an older Wolverine if that's where they, they want to go with it, you know, with the old grey hair and... Yeah, could be. I really hope they get this right because the more I think about it, the more I think this is an absolute logistical, mind-bending. Oh yeah, brain. I, I don't envy explosion. the person who wrote this script. I think Simon Kenberg has a, had a lot of input in the script. 
I don't envy anyone that job, especially having to fit characters who weren't in the comic book into this into this world, and somehow blend the sixties Magneto and Professor X with it's yeah. it. Well, time travel my, movies yeah. always are. It's it, you know you can always just pick pick them apart and pick holes in them. I mean I think you know Star Trek for example had a really elegant solution to the idea of rebooting a franchise, which is this basically oh we're going off in a different timeline, but it's the same time you know timeline. There's a connection. It's kind mm. of the trousers of time thing. If you read Terry Pratchett, um, but but you know you, people still poked holes in it till the cows come home, and, and the holes are there. Let's be honest. Um, it's just if you come up with an elegant enough conceit and a strong enough story. We're not going to care when we watch it. That's what Ryan Johnson said about Looper, isn't it? Yeah. He's like, yeah, you could probably unthread it if you wanted to, but just yeah. go with it. I don't mean, I'm not talking about the time travel stuff. I'm talking about just balancing all I these know. characters. Absolutely. It, it's it, a very, very tough mm-hmm. gig indeed. But uh, I don't know. But it's also interesting the uh, singer has confirmed the, the people who are returning from the original movie, if, mm-hmm. first class, and the people who aren't thus far so it's Michael Fassbender as Magneto it's Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique it is Nicholas Holt as Beast and obviously James McAvoy as Charles Xavier mm. but it is not so far anyway uh, people like Banshee Havoc uh, Zoe Kravitz as uh, another angel yeah interesting and Jason Fleming of course as, as Azel or uh, January Jones as Emma Frost I can't remember what else is coming out in 2014, but with the, the announcement of uh, McKellen and Stewart's uh, presence in the movie, it has become my most anticipated film of that year thus far. Ooh, over yeah, The I, Hobbit Part 3. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, yeah, I simply cannot wait. And I, I'm really, really keen to see what Brian Singer uh, will do with this. Amen. Amen, indeed. So let's move on. I've got one quick story which genuinely isn't geeky unless you happen to think that Susan Boyle is a nerdy topic, but she <laughs> has been, well, mooted for a for a film. Uh, it's not that surprising. She's uh, an immensely popular figure. Uh, I Dreamed a Dream. That is the name of a musical that's been made of her life. And they want to turn this musical possibly huh? into a film. So it'll be a kind of a biopic musical type thing. And it will tell the story of her her life from when she was a wean to when she made it to the big time and wow. sold big ton of records. There is a precedent for this, of course, because James mm-hmm. Corden is currently, right now, even as we speak probably, filming the Paul Potts life story called One Chance. And if you don't know who Paul Potts is, he was a dictator who was responsible for the deaths of perhaps uh, millions of... No, sorry, that's that's the Cambodian dictator. Now you're thinking of Paul Potts, P-A-U-L, who is no. the guy from Britain's Got Talent? Yeah, right. The, the opera scene. I'm standing by that. Okay. <laughs> but um, I can't be sued for that, can I? You really want to see a musical set in Southeast Asia during the <laughs> like late 60s and 70s. I don't, to be honest, but he is playing Paul Potts. There's my Northern Irishness. He is playing Paul Potts, who was the winner of Britain's Got Talent, I think, before Susan Boyle, is that right? I believe so, yeah. Memory he, he was a, a guy and he, he sang a bit of opera and everyone went, what an amazing voice. <laughs> and now he's played by James Corden. He, honestly, that's beyond your wildest dream stuff. And uh, so who who would play <laughs> You're so mean. So who will play Susan Boyle in this film? In my ideal world, who'll play yeah. Susan Boyle? James Corden. <laughs> oh, that's mean. Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. She's is already done the Susan song. Boyle. She has done the song. Just because we know Susan Boyle, we know you know everyone that she's so famous around the world that mm-hmm. you, you'd have to cast someone who's similar typed her, wouldn't you? You couldn't get away with Anne Hathaway, who's much younger. No, I, I'm, I think this is an absolute nightmare of a casting call. Pauline Collins. Pauline Collins, but too old. Is she? 
this is my other problem is that if they're going to tell the life of her is it going to be one of those four different people playing her jobs at what point will the break point be when will she turn into the Susan Ball we recognise maybe they'll do a walk hard approach and have whoever plays her as an adult playing her from the age of 13 upwards that's the way to go that's the way to do it also something's just popped into my head some horrible thing oh god uh, so if she, we're going to see the Britain's Got Talent portion <gasps> of her life that's who's right. going to play Piers Morgan oh. also I had a very quick news story oh I'm sorry. <laughs> Go on. Well, it was just about um, there's a new writer for the Forever War. So, so this is something that Ridley Scott's been trying to develop for about a bajillion years, mm-hmm. longer than the life of the Earth. Uh, this has been <laughs> in development. Um, it's obviously Joe Haldeman's amazing, amazing sci-fi novel. Um, and uh, Ridley Scott, having had a lot of different writers and different drafts over the years, has kind of apparently binned them all and hired D.W. Harper, who's the guy who wrote All You Need Is Kill recently and did some work on Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters as well, um, in to do a new take. And this is this is good news because anything that moves that film forward I think is exciting because it's a very, very cool book. Fantastic. I haven't read it, I'll be honest. Okay, it's, uh, it's basically about a uh, future war against aliens. Soldiers are kind of recruited and... Um, sent off to fight but because of the time effects they go through a wormhole but when they come back you know years and centuries and stuff have passed oh. and and earth has completely changed so they become more and more isolated from the people they're actually fighting for very very good book fantastic and uh, who's it by sorry joe haldeman joe haldeman okay excellent uh, another good point this week is that it is, of course, New Empire Week. Woo! The newish of uh, thank you, newish of Empire hit the stands yesterday and should have hit subscribers' doormats uh, earlier in the week. I'm hoping. I believe it um, And it's got tons of great stuff. What's it got? Oscar special, which I absolutely loved. It's got pieces from pretty much anybody you can think of, from John Hawkes, who's one of my favourite actors in the whole world, to Denzel Washington, who's one of my favourite actors in the whole world, and we've also got to Clint Lane Eastwood. Mears, Clint Eastwood. You name it, we got it. It's all in the bag. Jennifer Lawrence, Jennifer great interview Lawrence, with uh, Helen. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all very enjoyable. I've been enjoying it reading it, and I will enjoy reading it again when I get the chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else is in there? Django Unchained is on the front cover. Naturally, there's a nice big piece on Django Unchained. Also, we have uh, a Jack Reacher feature, another Reacher feature, featuring Mr. Tom Cruise himself and uh, Werner Herzog. That's going to be a, an amazing... Yeah. Uh, mashup. Um, Alec Baldwin speaks this month as well. A fascinating uh, bit on Life of Pi, um, mm-hmm. which is amazing how they even began to make their movie. Absolutely. And we've got the review of the year as well with our top films of 2012. Indeed. And we won't tell you what the top film is yet. You have to pick but the I magazine. But I was really pleased. But Helen was really pleased. I was really pleased. Uh, pleasantly surprised. Robbie Collins of the Daily Telegraph was not pleased, however. Mmm. Robbie. Um, Chris Hemsworth is our big interview. Uh, and uh, there's lots of uh, news and other stuff on the likes of Iron Man 3. It's a damn good issue. And uh, in one feature, I ventured to Brighton, no Gosh. less, to interview... I know. <laughs> you get all the glamorous assignments. I know. It was it was pissing down as well. In one feature, I ventured to Brighton to interview Ben Wheatley, the director of Down Terrace, Kill List, and, of course, Side Sears. And in the interests of a smooth segue, we're going to remain in Wheatley Terrace now, because uh, three years ago, the Brighton-based director was a virtual unknown. Now, he's not only frighteningly prolific, he shot and wrapped another film, A Field in England, in just two weeks, back in October, before Side Sears was even released, and it's due out next year. Uh, but he's frighteningly brilliant as well, creating three of the best films, not just best British films, but best films of the last three years, with an inimitable combination of domestic drudgery and genre thrills. Sightseers is a murderously funny comedy about a road trip with a pair of psychopaths, and that's his latest, and he popped into the pod booth to talk it up with myself and Nick Dissemlian. Uh We are joined in the pod booth by Ben Wheatley, the director of uh, Kill This, Down Terrace, Sightseers, and soon, well, a field in England next year. Do you out next year? Is that, is that the plan? 
Yeah, I've got to finish it first. But yeah. <laughs> how close are you to finishing it? Uh, I will have it done by Christmas, I reckon. Maybe. How much? You, how many of your movies, or how much of your movies, are, is found in the editing suite with Amy? I think all all um, films are found in the editing suite. Yeah. You know, and these ones particularly. Um, I mean, I mean sightseers. We shot a lot, so there was a lot more options uh, in the edit. Um, down terrace, not so much. Because <laughs> there wasn't so much footage, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, the edit, the edit is uh, it was one of my favourite bits of it. Who was your first cuts like? I mean, for example, the first cut in side series, which is now ninety minutes long, tight ninety minutes. What was the first cut on? on um, I think the rough, the assemble rough cut that Rob Hill did was four hours. <laughs> um, and it, you know, imagine all the laughs in sightseers stretched to the <laughs> elastic limit over four hours. It was, it was long. And um, on this movie, which was uh, co-produced by Big Talk as well, so you have Lara Park, Edgar Wright involved as well. Mm. At what point did they begin to input into the edit, and how much how much notice do you take of of, of notes? Um, they uh, you take a lot of notice of notes, obviously, mm. um, but it. I've got a general plan with notes is that I'll do them if I can't answer them if I can answer them then I'll try not to do them because that's it really you know and then right, other, yeah. other than that it's, then it's just opinion isn't it so but if it's a that absolute problem um, I mean Edgar's stuff notes were much more much broader and kind of more like things like um, you want to use some more music or you know you don't be afraid to use pop music and stuff which we mm. I'd held back on on the earlier cuts so that was a really good note um, I think it's mainly because I'm a kind of a low budget boy and I don't like paying for, <laughs> for music and so talking of Edgar there's a cornetto in Sightseers and I remember I, I believe there is anyway and I, I think I tweeted you after I saw it yeah. asking if I'm that was that, anything I'm to do with Edgar clever, no. <laughs> so did he, did he comment on that when, when he no, saw it? I no? Don't, no I don't think anyone thought about that okay. it just kind of happened it's just a random cornetto yeah these things happen how, how did Sightseers happen because it, it, it it's the Right, and think it's the first project you've done that, that didn't really originate with you or or Amy. Yeah, I mean, it. Um, it I'd gone to see Naira at um, Naira Park at uh, Big Talk after Down Terrace, and she she said, "Oh, here's a script. Do you fancy doing this?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, you know, I love Big Talk and Edgar and all that. That's great." So um, <laughs> I, but then I saw what it was and I knew it because I'd seen the short film version of it. Oh, you had? Yeah, yeah about three years before right right so I went oh it's that oh okay, okay. And, and I knew Alice and Steve from doing TV work with them yeah so that was good and I, I thought oh, yeah I'd like to do this it's kind of I, I felt like I wanted to do a, or needed to do a comedy after doing Kill List yes <laughs> so I thought, you know so that it can't, it'd come out of that basically Okay, but Kill List hadn't been made at that point. No, no, that was, but uh, it was yeah. it was coming though. It was oh. it was a dark cloud on the horizon <laughs> that was about to about to happen. And I thought, you know what? If I don't make something that's lighter after this, I could be making this film forever. But at the same time, it, it continues a lot of the um, the the themes and patterns establishing Kill List. A lot of people die in this one as well inside series, and there's 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 quite a bit of a gristle and gore. Yeah, um, you know. But um, I di- I wasn't thinking about that when I took the job on. <laughs> I was seeing the lighter side of it, like dogs and caravans and stuff. Right. Um, but then, yeah, we watched it and we go, oh, God, yeah, there's a lot of killing in this. <laughs> How many killings? There's about, what, six or seven killings? There's quite a lot of killings. Yeah, quite a lot of killings. There's a fair amount. So there's this uh, with Down Terrace, do you see this? And uh, 
kill list and and now side series is this part of a trilogy of you a, a killogy if you will if <laughs> in a way or you yeah um i i've i've you know being a, a raging egotist i'm <laughs> i'm a great follower of my own q and a's on uh, on youtube <laughs> and notice that i've said both no it is not a trilogy uh-huh yes it is a trilogy uh-huh so i've no idea what so I'm, today both bases no yeah. what, what position i'm taking on it i think it, it, it's not a trilogy when i'm doing a q a when i'm getting asked really difficult questions about <laughs> linking between the three films because it's quite uncomfortable to talk about <laughs> but in the comfort of my own home where there's no one chatting back i'll go right. yeah obviously it's all designed <laughs> to fit together perfectly well it'll be released as a box set won't it yeah though, yeah, though they're two Studio Canal films and a, and a, a Metrodome film, so it's oh kind God. of it, there might be some kind of in, intense negotiation. You can build a special <laughs> case, so it's two in one part, and then this yeah. third one. So well, you have to go to a, a special shop and buy yeah. it and then glue them together or something. So I think that might happen, but I mean, you know, the the economy of Britain will will you know peak as the <laughs> sales of my box hit, hit the high streets no doubt you know i was wondering if you'd heard back from any of those places that you've kind of made famous there's a there's a bit of twitter action from the pencils so they, <laughs> they're excited about the film which is good i just hope they're all happy with it when all it right. comes out you know because i think it i hope we dealt with them in a way that the the humor comes from the characters not from the places as much mm. You know, we don't take the Mickey out of the places because they're good places. You know, no, the pencil museum is fantastic. To, I have to I, find them on Twitter and follow them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Live um, Twitter as they watch the film. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear that. And then grab, isn't it? So the, the pencil museum has a, the biggest pencil in the world and the second biggest. <laughs> the second biggest pencil in the world. That's <laughs> the third Glory biggest. Hunters, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I think that kind of on the. The bell curve of pencils probably gets quite. There's a quite a lot of the third biggest so, ones. There's these. There's the ones these size, and then there's a little HB. There's, yeah, yeah. Just, but there's the, big, no the biggest one, which is in the film, which yeah. is, they, where they're all looking at it, is uh, is impressive. Right, really impressive. Um, yeah. But the second biggest one is okay. It's not, <laughs> at, you know. Obviously, you can see why they went the extra mile to make the biggest one. If you can hold a pencil in two hands, and you're, you're doing okay. Well, this is this needs a team of rugby players to hold <laughs> the, the biggest one. So, what about? I mean, I was on set uh, last year every couple of days and um, talking about things making into your movies and don't make it into your movies. So mm. There's a there's a sequence in um, that I saw on set uh, where someone had scribbled with one of those giant pencils a rude phrase on the side of the caravan that uh, that, that uh, Steve and Alice have in the movie. Mm. That didn't make it at the film. That that's that, that plot. Can you can you talk about what make you know how you decide something like that doesn't come out? Um, obviously, that you know it's a comedy, so there's elements of things that might may or may not come off that are funny. Mm. But sometimes there's equally there's stuff in it that's really funny, but it just doesn't fit with the flow of the movie and the emotional kind of flow of it. Mm-hmm. So we found that a lot with the films where there's points, there's emotional points in the movie where it just has to end after that, right. and anything that gets in the way of that becomes superfluous or confusing and you lose that moment and you've got to end on the on the on the highest point in the film yeah, yeah. if you can you know um and you don't want to clog it up with extra plots and you can't necessarily tell that necessarily from the script okay and, and because there's so many elements that mean that something works or it doesn't work so sometimes you some you know and I've done it on the other movies where we've shot lots of scenes of exposition just in case the things don't gel <laughs> you don't understand what the hell's going on so at least you've got something that you can always go back to and use to, to, to put it together um, so yeah so there was a bit of a plot that came that we stripped out of the film also it was running long so I, wanted, I, I like films that are 90 so 
we kind of that was part of it <laughs> fair enough fair enough and uh, this began with Steve Oram and uh, Alice Lowe you know who created these characters mm. a few years ago what was it like working on a on a film with the creators of the characters and did that did that make things difficult at any point did you have ideas about where the characters would go that maybe they didn't quite want to go with or oh yeah they fought against the naked dancing scene <laughs> they didn't want to do it you know right. I felt stifled creatively that they wouldn't go with that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but um no I mean I've done you know I've worked obviously when I did Ideal um Graham Duff was there the whole time he was the writer and yeah. and um down terrorist Rob Hill obviously is a was a creator uh, performer on that as well, so it's not it's not that unusual for for my working methods to work with. And, but the, but basically the the main strategy I had with Alice and Steve was to make sure that they were exhausted, <laughs> and we worked them really really hard, and because well, uh, we shoot so fast and so long that they didn't have a chance to think about what was going on. Oh really? Yeah. So okay. they were kind of in character, whipped up into a frenzy, <laughs> um, and that that kind of helped. I was just going to ask a question um, about Field in England. Just curious about. I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but something about reading the the, the sort of setup to it reminded me of Witchfinder General. Is that a, a film that was any kind of influence on it, or am I just? It's in the same period, right? Okay, <laughs> they've got very similar hats on. <laughs> um, Pointy hats. Yeah, it's not about. It's not about that bit of the Civil War, right? But it it, it does involve magic and muskets and. And uh, those boots they wear. That's got such a crazy heightened tone to it. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, they, uh, in, in field, there's a lot of psychedelia, and it's more, it's closer to like a Corman '60s mm. okay. uh, Poe thing than. But I mean, it's very stripped down. You know, it's only in a field. It's just. Okay. Um, but then we found weirdly, we found it felt quite like a cowboy movie by the end of it, which was quite nice, which you hadn't really thought about. Mm. And uh, men striding around with big hats and <laughs> pistols. <laughs> is it literally not to give too much away? But is it, does it, the whole thing literally take place in one field? There might, you know what? There's two fields. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And there's a hedge. <laughs> with a, is the caterpillar in the hedge? Uh, it never to. gets to the hedge. The caterpillar. <laughs> so you're gonna you're gonna open it up for the sequel, Fields in England, and then the trilogy's <laughs> Fields and a Hedge in England. Yeah, is that the idea? Well, they all they moved out. Yeah, Lane in Wales or something like that. <laughs> hedge, hedge in Scotland. That would be awesome. Um, going back to side series, it, it debuted at Cannes mm. last year, and it won a major prize. It did. It won the Palm Dog. Yes. Uh, for uh, for Smurf, yes. who plays uh, Banjo aka Poppy in the, in the film. Um, you must be very proud about that. I I went to Cannes and I knew I was going to win a prize in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, the dog won the prize, but I was I got to pick it up for the dog because he can't speak. Um, so yeah, you know, I was very proud, very happy about that. Right, because this is a it's a it's a rare performance from a dog because. I've, I've not really seen too many dogs in, in movie history playing a confused dog before. A dog that's essentially two characters. If you, if you will, I don't want to give too much away about yeah. the film, obviously, but uh, it was a masterful performance by the dog. But yeah. to be fair, I put it down. I'll have to take some of the credit for my direction. <laughs> I talked to the dog a lot. A lot of discussions. We had a we 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 kind of planned out. Um, a background for the dog and right. we t- I talked it through with Smurf about what his <laughs> life had been like before this moment um, did workshop it quite a lot 
We might as well because Uggy from the artist milked that that shit as far as for, for months. So yeah, yeah. I I heard that he's not that nice a dog. <laughs> That's what's been going around. He's a, yeah, he's yeah. an ankle biter. That's what I heard. Yeah. Um, and there's there's one last thing about about, about side series. Uh, again, not to give too much away, but there's an invention in the movie uh, which I marvelled at um, called the carapod, mm. and I believe that's 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 yours. Your, that's your invention. Is that, is that well, right? Well, no, I couldn't claim that. It's um, Amy's. Amy's. Oh, Amy's invention. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Can you talk us through the, what a carapod is? And it, it's like a tiny caravan <laughs> that goes on the back of a bicycle. It looks a bit like a plastic slug <laughs> with two with wheels, and. Uh, people have been asking where'd you get that from you know, yeah. and it was like, you know it's like a film we, we built it you, know, <laughs> you, can, you can write stuff in the script and they'll go away and make it for you <laughs> Star Wars wasn't shot in space it was no don't 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 but, it. Um, yeah it, it turns out it's really difficult to cycle with dangerous heavy useless you're better <laughs> off with a tent <laughs> but it does look good in the film where did it end up is it in your garden no it is in store at the moment so we, you know one of them obviously didn't make it due to you couldn't possibly say plot, <laughs> plot related massive Michael Bay style car chase <laughs> explodes um, but the the other one this you know the backup one much like in contact they always have a second one mm. built um, uh, yeah he's somewhere so yeah I mean I've got some of the stuff off of it I've got the pencil at home Okay, okay. So I'm quite excited about that. It looks good in the house. Because I just think the carapod is, you know, it, it looks great. It's largely functional. <laughs> you know, it probably won't kill you. Probably. Mm. Uh, so if you thought about, I don't know, going in Dragon's Den and maybe asking for 10% equity in return for £100,000 investment. I think the thing is about it is that part of the business plan would have to be levelling the whole of the world. <laughs> so there was no <laughs> incline. <laughs> because it's quite hard pedalling it up any kind of hill and I think that the dragons would balk at that cost I need to say you want to, you want to level the whole world for under these mounts yeah. I'm out yeah. Yeah, I'm a, yeah that would cost at least 200,000 pounds <laughs> so yeah, I think that yeah sadly that is not <laughs> going to make me rich. All right. Well, Ben, I think we've got to let you go to a Q&A. Are you doing something about The Shining? Is that is that what you're doing? Yeah, yeah I'm off to be slightly awkward <laughs> <laughs> sitting next to, to the producer of The Shining and seeing if I can add anything to that conversation. <laughs> Did you know Kubrick? No. Oh. Did you? Yes, I did know Cooper. Okay, you better talk while I look at my hands then for the rest of this. Yeah, so did you know he did lots of takes? <laughs> that's, that's, that's all yeah. I've got. I've seen The Shining, it's good. <laughs> do, you have any, uh, do you have any crazy theories on it? Um, no. You see, this, is, this, is a ta- this is a taster of how it's going to go, isn't it? Bloody hell, I haven't thought this through. I need to, I need to think about it. Come up with one on the way, though. Just, uh, yeah, no, just go red rum, red rum, and then just <laughs> run out of the way. Frighten everyone, yeah. If anything goes wrong. Listen, Ben, it's been a pleasure, as always. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Lovely guy. And uh, Side Series is a great film. So, in fact, let's kick off our reviews section this week with Side Series. Who fancies it? Who's going to tell me about Side Series? 
I can't. I did the feature. <laughs> yes, this is a very, very funny and at the same time very, very bleak comedy. I mean, you know, you're laughing, but you don't feel good about it sometimes. <laughs> uh, it is. Um, it's basically the story of two very ordinary schlubs. Uh, the actors intentionally deglamming themselves. Steve Orham and Alice Lowe. And Alice Lowe, yeah. Um, and uh, going basically on a caravanning holiday around some of Britain's less obvious tourist attractions. Let's say tram museums <laughs> and pencil factories have their very rightful place in the world but perhaps not on most people's itineraries but these two do head there um, and along the way um, you don't want to say too much things get a bit at first kind of accidental death is involved maybe and then it kind of seems to be a, a little bit more you know intentional and, and things kind mm. of spiral murders happen murders happen there's, certainly this, there's a hair's breadth between this film and Kill List in a, in a weird way both are almost you know they're both about two people going around killing you know killing other people um, but this is there's totally this is a world away from, from, mm. from Kill List but I think this is in, in some ways maybe Ben Whitley's most accomplished film it's it's wonderfully funny very dark very disturbing and brilliantly written and performed by Steve Oram and Alice Lowe they're absolutely terrific who wrote it I believe they did write it yeah yeah I think I really thought this film was fantastic I think I love it's a weird thing to say I suppose but I think I laughed more in this film than just about anything else I'd seen this year because the, the comic moments I guess partly are a relief from some of the more macabre elements to the film mm. but they're so well judged and I think that probably comes from the two actors having developed these characters down the years and they're so comfortable in them even though they're quite you know, uncomfortable people. Yeah, they started off on tour with Steve Cookin. That's exactly, and so they kind of understand the characters inside out. I think Ben Wheatley, you know, was obviously bringing his vision to it, let them do their thing, and the, there's real wit and spontaneity in this stuff, and, and you find yourself laughing when you feel like you shouldn't, and I think that's what it's set out to do. Yeah, it does absolutely. It. And uh, it's got some hysterical lines in it as well. It really does. Um it's going to be quoted a lot around Very this quotable. office quite a lot. Yeah. Do you Brilliant. think Ben Wheatley will ever be given a, a task that's more kind of conventional? He seems to be doing it very much along his own uh, path he's doing his own thing the, the stuff I hear about it is all very very good would somebody in Hollywood just stick him in a packaged movie maybe? Well I think as um, in the Empire feature I did with him which you can read in the new issue of Empire on sale now three ninety nine. all good news agents um <laughs> He talks about how he has been offered some stuff in the past and it's very much, oh, you did a horror film. Here's a horror film. Mm. And he doesn't really want to do less of this stuff. And he's got his own plan over the next couple of years. So he's already done Field in England. He's got, uh, he's working on a, what for him is a huge movie, $15 million budget called Freak Shift, which is about cops battling monsters. And that's going to be next, hopefully. And then after that, there's a film, sorry, there's a film with Nick Frost called I Macrobane, which is a weird time travel dark comedy with lots of stop motion effects and uh, that could be that could be very intriguing after that I don't know what he's got he's got a couple of other things he's working on but what, you he he's only got three or four he's only got three or four which he'll probably have done by next next month he's the <laughs> he's a British Takashi Miike uh, in many ways uh, I, I think he's fantastic utterly fantastic a really original voice so four stars there for side series I thought personally I would add a big fat fifth red one to that uh, okay up next is the DreamWorks animation Rise of the Guardians like a weird kind of not so Avengers it brings together Santa Claus the Easter Bunny the Tooth Fairy the Sandman and Jack Frost to ward off evil in the shape of Jude Law thoughts on this one I thought this was really very good I yeah. wasn't expecting it at all for me it kind of maybe didn't come out of nowhere because you know I work in film journalism I should know this stuff but it was relatively obscure to me I, I didn't know what to expect I didn't have great expectations which we'll talk about later <laughs> now just so to clear, we can clear up who's in this film Santa Claus is played by Jack Donaghy also known as <laughs> Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin. Thank you. Uh, the Easter Bunny is played by Wolverine, also known as... Hugh Jackman. Uh, the Tooth Fairy is played by 
the girl from Home and Away yes <laughs> Isla Fisher uh, and the Sandman is not played by anyone because he doesn't say anything yeah. so that's lovely Jack Frost, Jack Frost is the new guy he's a new member of this troupe he's brought into this special as you say Avengers like children guardian type mystical connection zone I don't know what the word is for it mm. apparently they're called the guardians of childhood in the William Morris books they are absolutely right I'm trying to the word for what they are they're kind of a super club the Avengers the Avengers comparison is not a new one I, I basically stole it from the Cannes Film Festival when there was uh, some of this footage present, presented to journalists and they had lots of the cast there and Ali Baldwin this room full of international journalists Ali Baldwin basically came out and said yeah we're the uh, Justice League of childhood and nobody knew what that was nobody knew what that was and so Isla Fisher they went yeah we're basically animated Avengers and everybody went oh I get it yes Avengers and you can just see Ali Bowen going oh god these people deserve to die anyway um, yes so I stole it from him it's good to know that he's DC through and through <laughs> the bad guy is Jude Law's pitch but he's essentially the, the, the boogie monster he's the guy that brings fear to you and hides under your bed and spooks you out yeah can I just say the thing that startled me the most is the visual joy in just seeing this film. Sandman is a small uh, character. He's maybe about two foot tall and he can create almost anything out of this dreamlike sand. And what they do with it, DreamWorks, is astonishing. They create so much and, and do so much with it that I, I almost, I absolutely loved it. It was a, a great joy to, to watch. The story revolves around the new guy, Jack Frost, who appears born like, as uh, Ollie Richards points out in the review uh, in the mag, uh, from the bottom of a pool of water, not knowing who he was uh, and what he's meant to do. He discovers that he's not half bad at making ice appear and causing fun for kids and kind of, you know, being a bit of a japester. He's brought into this team and then they have to face off against Jude Law's pitch. There on in, it's a reasonably traditional tale of how they kind of beat him. There aren't that many great surprises and, you know, lessons are learnt and characters are fleshed out. But there's a lot going on. It's very busy. Yeah, but it's sort of... It, well, I don't know, it just didn't feel that way to me. It felt quite well laid out in terms of what was going on. I think it helps that, obviously, all the characters, you're starting from a base where you've got a notion of who they're meant to be. Mm. You've got a notion that the Easter Bunny's, you know, to do with Easter, so it kind of helps. Sure. Hugh Jackman's actually one of my favourite bits in it. He uh, he really plays the Aussiness to the hilt because he's full Aussie. He calls people flaming dingoes and... Den uh, so we give this one four, four stars. stars. So we begin to see the influence of Guillermo del Toro, do you think, on DreamWorks animation films? Or I thought it was there a little bit. Just his kind of weirdness, I thought, came through in some of the supporting characters, particularly, you know, the design of like the yesies and the uh, the very unusual elves that North, aka Father Christmas, has working in his in his establishment. Just little touches around the edge, and just the the air of kind of the texture, really, of of these worlds that they created. And not talking down to kids. I think that's something that's big on Guillermo's Absolutely. list as well. Fantastic. So four stars for Rise of the Guardians. And uh, speaking of Guardians, Ali, you've got to leave, I've, haven't you? I've got to go. I've got to be picked up by my dad. You're off to... Where are you going? I'm off to go and see Lincoln. <gasps> oh, so cool. good. It's also so long, so I need to go get lots of food first. All right, go. Rush. I run. will. Goodbye. Thank go you very on. much. I'm sorry for blabbing, everyone. Go with our um, blessing. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Indeed. Bye-bye. Bye, Ali. Next up is Great Expectations. We had Stephen Woolley and obviously Phil. Uh, were our expectations met by this film? Um, yes and no. I'm going to disappoint Stephen Woolley because he said in, in our interview that he liked polar reviews, you know, the really good ones or the really slamming ones. And I'm a little yeah. bit in the middle on this one. I, yes. enjoyed, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I, it wasn't David Lean's Great Expectations. It didn't set out to be David Lean's Great Expectations. It is very much a modern... 
Dickensian, a modern update of a Dickensian tale, not in the sense of the Alfonso Cuaron one where it actually puts it in a modern context, but it just brings a modern sensibility. It kind of visualises a lot more of the sort of sensuality, I guess, of the relationship between Jeremy Irvine's Pip and Holiday Granger, who's fantastic as um, as Estella. Um where does it fall down? I guess in, in some of the peripheral elements it didn't really work quite as well for me. And I think when I think about Great Expectations and especially the David Lean version, um, which you can't really get away from, it's that scene, that kind of gothic um, scene in with Mrs. Havisham mm-hmm. and Miss Havisham, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Estella and Pip together, surrounded by all these kind of goth horror kind of accoutrements and the cobwebs and the spookiness and and those scenes were great Helen in Bottom Carter was was very very good but it didn't quite have the the magic of of the story for me in its entirety so we gave it three stars I'd probably go along with that it's visually it's visually a treat it's a great seasonal film to go and see with the family there's darkness in it obviously there's a dark story it's a great story it's my favourite book and uh, I would um, I would recommend it at the cinema if you want to take your folks um, pre-Christmas I think it would be on the money it doesn't have a lot of edge to it a little bit safe yeah I think so I think so but I mean you know as I say it doesn't pull its punches on some of the darker side of the story no it doesn't story. a bit of a surprise at times because I thought it would pull its punches a little bit no it doesn't and I, I respect Mike Newell for that he's a really really terrific filmmaker um, and he does a good solid job with this um, it's just a story that's kind of maybe been told so many times that you really need to you know come up with a wizzo treatment and it perhaps yeah. doesn't quite have that you know that real majesty um, I was someone that really 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 loved Anna Karenina which again has been made a number of times mm. but I thought Joe Wright brought something really innovative to it and for everyone that says actually that, that film lacked a bit in the heart department I would take the stunning visuals and the innovative you know the theatricality of the production it had something new it had something really fresh in it and it had a real energy and a real flow this film feels more like you know another kind of period um, literary adaptation um, it didn't really stand out on that in that sense, which would probably keep me from being more effusive about it. But I mean, I did did enjoy it, and um, and it has lots of good things in it. I think Holiday Granger is really going to is a talent to look out for. Um, Helena Bonham Carter, you can imagine, was almost born for that role. Um, so yes, three stars from us. Three stars for us indeed, and uh, a shout out to Jason Fleming, who's very very good as Joe mm. Gargery, who's kind of the well, kind of the heart of the piece in a, in a, in, a, in a way. And uh, there's an amazing scene where he's talking to Pip, and he lets slip. Matthew Vaughan's directing Star Wars Episode 7 which, which, <laughs> that's a great which surprised scene. me really that's surprised me actually didn't, didn't see that one coming at all uh, Phil uh, we gave him one three stars yes which again uh, is a recommendation it is a recommendation, it's a recommendation. Said every week <laughs> uh, but Phil I think you're also keen to give a shout out to Thomas yeah. Vinterberg's The Hunt I yeah I very much am because Thomas Vinterberg's been he's been doing films and he's been in America making films with greater or less, lesser success um, but he is the man behind one of I think one of the greatest films that I've seen which is Festen um, working with Lars von Trier at the beginning of the Dogway movement this is a long way from that this is I think uh, just an incredibly powerful well told story that just couldn't be any more topical um, it's got Mads Mikkelsen he won the can at Best Actor Award for his part and he is always good and he's phenomenal in this part um, 
he plays a nursery school teacher who's wrongly accused of molesting a small girl in his class and the witch hunt that kind of builds around him is very reminiscent of um, Arthur Miller's The Crucible if you know that play and you know the film you'll understand that he's a man apart he has friends he has a young son he's just come through a divorce and he's in this small Scandinavian community that really just circles the wagons against him and it's got some incredibly powerful set pieces um, but if if I you know we gave it four stars if I were to say on top of that that in the context of some of the things that have been talked about in the media at the moment and in the country in terms of our treatment of these these tough issues this is a very intelligent film and it stems from not not British issues but real social workers reports from another country Thomas Winterberg wouldn't say which one because I guess he didn't want to you know make it a witch hunt in that sense either sure. um, but if anything he's toned down some of the things from actual factual events that have happened um, it's got two or three of the most intense scenes I've seen this year and uh, and as I say Mads Mikkelsen is, is fantastic um, so a big recommendation from me on that one. Indeed, and if you want to read a little bit more from Mads Mikkelsen, who of course is a new Hannibal Lecter as well, uh, there's an interview with him in the new issue of, of Empire. My word, everything's dovetailing nicely. Look at that. You've got a job with the marketing department, Chris. It's astonishing <laughs> synergies that we're achieving here. Yeah. I should have an Empire Christmas Let's jumper. Synergize. Indeed, and the, uh, we gave four stars to that one. We did. We did. Indeed. Uh, you sound like with me with Sightseers. You want to add a big fat fifth red one I to that? I feel, I all felt that about Sightseers too, actually, personally, but I mean, yeah, the hunt. Um, yeah, I'd be close to a five, but no, I think four is probably fair. Okay, and there are a couple of movies we should also mention this week, including Xavier Dolan's Lawrence Anyways, which uh, uh, is also given four stars. And there's also Alex Cross or James Patterson's Alex Cross, as it seems to have been retitled for this country, which is a two star film. And Clint Eastwood in Trouble with the Curve, which is also a three star film, which is a recommendation, of course. Mm. Uh, but you know. I think that's mainly for people who want to see Clint Eastwood bark orders at his penis. <laughs> it's not bad, a, otherwise. It's just a bit scene. fluffy around the edges, I think. We'll be reviewing Seven Psychopaths, which opens on Wednesday uh, in next week's pod. Uh, but do go see it. It's really good as well. So we'll get around to that next week. And normally we'd say that's it for this week at this point. But no, we have uh-huh. one last treat for you guys. As you may or may not know, End of Watch opened in this country last week. It's one of the best cop thrillers in years and stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Michael Peña as two beat cops who get in way over their heads with the Mexican cartel. If you haven't seen it, go see it. You won't regret it. Gyllenhaal, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood thanks to turns in the likes of Donnie Darko, Brokeback Mountain and Source Code, popped in this week to talk about the movie and more besides. Phil and I were there to record every single word while trying to stop Helen doing dreamy face at him through the window. This is outrageous slander. Yeah, well, it's true. Also. Okay. Uh, Word of the wise, so this interview was recorded after the main podcast, so we hope he didn't go nuts and kill everybody, because that would be a bit of a downer. Uh, So do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined in the pod booth by the star of End of Watch, and obviously countless other movies, Mr. Jake Gyllenhaal. Hello, sir. Hello. Welcome to London. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, And of course, you lived here, didn't you, for a a short while back when you were doing This Is Our Youth? I did. I, I've lived here a number of different times uh-huh. over the course of my my long lifetime so far. Um, <laughs> you that old? <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah. I did the show uh, This Our Youth on the West End, and then uh-huh. and then I shot um, two movies here. So I've been here uh, oh, good good amount of time. I would say cumulatively probably about two years of my life. Um, but um, we're here to talk uh, End of Watch, which I adored. Absolutely loved the film, Thank and you, I'm not alone because. No less an authority than William Friedkin. I don't know if you know this. I do know you this. You do know this. Yeah. Called it maybe the best cop movie ever. How do you how do you feel about that? That's the guy who did the French Connection. <laughs> I know, man. Um, 
that was a that was a really nice morning when I got told about that and that he had tweeted that out that he had seen the movie and he he said that he thought that it was one of the best cop movies made. I think in in a lot of ways the thing that makes it different from a lot of other cop movies at least in the genre that we know so well and we've seen done so many times is the, the relationship you yeah. know and from someone like him you know where it's about watching human beings be human beings and their all their complications you know um and that the you know the, the external trappings of whatever it is being a police officer or um are external trappings so the human being inside you know or underneath that uniform is what mm. it's about and that's what the movie's about and that's what we wanted to make it about and i know that's when i first read the screenplay for the movie i knew that that's why i wanted to do it so i think it's come across in the movie and, and clearly people like him are responding to it and and I'm very proud of it. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I honestly could have watched uh, you two guys, you and Michael Pena, just ride around in that black and white for, for hours without any of the story intruding on the film. And, and it's mm-hmm. great when it does. Yeah. But the chemistry between you guys is so great. And was that something that, that clicked right away? Because I, I think I read somewhere that it didn't click right away. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was an arranged marriage of sorts. You know, I mean, you put you you cast two actors and in a movie, and you tell them that you're supposed they're supposed to be best friends. You know, yeah. that's um, not always something. I think they're the it's probably like a very low chance that they will just immediately get along. Mm. And we were tried and tested. I mean, we just were put through. You know, our the paces we had to do we did ride-alongs with police officers in south central la two or three times a week you know for five months and tactical training with live ammunition together where we're communicating with each other and we need each other so that we don't actually get shot ourselves you know um and then fight training where we're we did fight each other once and that's we were only allowed to do that once because um (laughs) we really did beat each other up pretty badly but yeah yeah we did but then then we were there supporting each other for five months while you know the uh, we would both spar at different times every morning you know five five days a week um our lives were completely consumed in this movie and becoming okay. friends. And by two, two and a half months in, you know, we got in our first big fight and we knew that we were friends. And <laughs> I mean, that, that was really what it came down to. And, and, and all, a lot of this stuff is written, um, our relationship inside that car, probably yeah. about 90% of it, but that 10% that is improv and is that relationship that we forged over that amount of time and, and our honesty with each other. I mean, that's what it's about. That's what we love watching movies is, people being honest and telling us some sort of truth and um i think michael and i knew that inherently this movie would would only work if if this relationship and our relationship was actually true Mm. and i'm most proud of that that i feel like it is true is this the most sort of invested you've been in in the world of a movie i mean is this the, the deepest you've gone in the preparation because it seems like for everything I've read about the things that you've talked about and the passion that you have for this film yes. it seems like something that's really really personal to you not just to someone that comes from LA but but on a different level could you talk a little bit about that perhaps yeah we met me in the movie <laughs> at a period of time in both of our lives uh, that was um, I think searching for something where I could connect my life and life itself with the work that I do and one of the most amazing things I can see about what I do in my job, which is absurd, my job most of the time in a lot of ways, is that you get to learn and see what people really do and the commitment that people have to their their real jobs. People are doing the real work in the world, changing the world. And I made a decision that I wanted to learn about the world. You know, I, I, I started very young. You know, I was blessed to start really young doing this and 
and I, I don't think I ever had the perspective of how much I could learn, how much the world was a, a classroom, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided with this one, alongside the fact that, you know, it's a world I don't know at all. And I think I, I wouldn't necessarily be the first person that you would think of playing a sort of tough cop on the streets, you know? And I knew that I have to immerse myself into something and become it in order to really deliver a performance and then on top of that there was this style of filmmaking that was first person and real and we knew that the way david one dave wanted to shoot it which was in 22 days which is the shortest um shoot i've ever done in my career that we had to be we literally had to be cops in every moment and we'd had to know the material well enough and then also behave had had to be second nature just to put that into context, you can yeah. shoot five um, end of watches in, in the space of a Zodiac. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You Pretty could. much. Yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah. I mean, and with, yeah, in the space and also with all the money, too. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, we, what's so, what's such a triumph, I think, to me about this movie is that it's possible to go back to the commitment that it takes to do real good work and you you don't need all the resources that you you don't need all the things and all the trappings that people might think you need to make a movie um well what you need is commitment and connection and a belief Mm. in what you're doing you know that's all that's all we really need to pull off anything (laughs) that 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 is good i mean you know um in the movie, uh, Michael does the lion's share of, I think, all the driving in the black and white. Yes. Um, which surprised me because, and this may not be true because I read it on the internet, mm. but apparently Paul Newman taught you how to drive. <laughs> so. My father taught me how to drive, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is one one fun fact that doesn't seem as entertaining when you're on the radio. <laughs> he was taught how to drive by his dad. Yeah. Scratch that one off. So we heard something. We heard that your father taught you how to drive. Is that true? Um, <laughs> but your first name is Jake. Correct? <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, That's you correct. got the right okay. guy here. Okay. Yeah, don't okay. worry about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Paul Newman, I happened to go to a, a racetrack um, when I was around the time that I was about to get my, my, my learn. I had my learner's permit, but I was about to get my license in. Paul Newman actually took me out on the racetrack and taught me how to sort of control a car and drive at, a, at you know, 250 miles an hour, basically. <laughs> so, um, which I have not done since. So, um, but I did learn a lot about cars um, from him. Um, he was someone that I knew um, and who I was I was close to in um, many ways. But my father did really teach me how to drive. Um, and everything I know about, really, most of what I know about driving comes from my father. So, um, though Paul Newman was and still is in many ways the coolest man, <laughs> um, alive or not, um, my dad did teach me how to drive. And okay. he's pretty cool. Too. Salad dressing, though, <laughs> Paul Newman taught. That was when I first heard about Paul Newman um, and was introduced to him. I thought he was really just the salad dressing guy. So that <laughs> that lets you know about my extensive knowledge of film. There was some talk about your uh, quote typical white man dancing. No, I thought your uh, salt and yeah. pepper moves were pretty pretty fresh. Thank I don't you. know if you had any thoughts. You know what, Michael is actually a really good dancer. Is he? And I'm not one. To, I'm not one to um, stoop so low. <laughs> he um he is right about that but we are also that that dance sequence in the movie is choreographed by the same woman who choreographed pulp fiction the dance sequence really? in pulp fiction yeah so you know um i'm pretty proud of my moves um and uh you know ultimately 
it takes uh, a lot of courage to get up there in it front does. of. And by the way, most of the people in that wedding sequence where I'm dancing in the movie were all cops, so real <laughs> cops. So it takes a lot of courage to get up there and like you know shake your booty in front of a, a whole a whole room full of cops. But uh, but yeah, I'll take the criticism. He'll get it. He'll get it when he <laughs> when I talk to him on the phone next. <laughs> publicly, uh, privately, he's gonna get it, but publicly, he won't. All right, fair enough. Um, obviously, you mentioned your dad there. Your dad is a is a director. Your your mother was a screenwriter, and your yes. your sister is an actress. I mean, was this something you were always destined to go into, or was there a point? When you were young, you were going to rebel. I'll be a pediatrician. I'll be anything else other than an, an actor. I love that. I'm going to rebel. I'm going to be a pediatrician. <laughs> it's very um, specific rebellion. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my grandfather um, was a surgeon. My grandmother was a pediatrician, ironically. And my mother rebelled. Yeah. Okay. And she became a screenwriter and <laughs> got into movies. I don't know if there was really ever a point. I think I was always enamored with storytelling. Mm-hmm. And the puzzle of it, I think the nature of it kind of can encompass so many different professions. You know, it is it is mathematical. It is it is creative in a way that is um, artistic. It is so many things all once in one. And I I never really thought of anything else. I mean, acting, performing was something that um, I love doing, and I always have, and it sort of is second nature. So you started off, I mean, in terms of film anyway, though, you started off as a 10-year-old on uh, City Slickers. Yes. What did you know about acting going into that? Were you, were you wet behind so the ears? So much more than I do now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you that. If I could only talk to my 10-year-old self, I would start to learn a lot more. Um, I mean, yeah, it was very young, too young, mm. I would say. But it was very short stint. You know, my parents are very careful about... Um, I happen to be lucky enough to, to um, be in a family where my my parents were both um, working and, and making money for the family. And I know a lot of people I know who started very young, you know, it was an opportunity and there was money and it was a way of, you know, really supporting the family. And, and, I, and I was lucky enough not to be in that position where I, I sort of did that at that age and then went to school. Mm-hmm. And my, my parents were very um, strict about that about going to school and getting an education and um, just being amongst people who would give me a, a lot of crap all the time, right. which is what high school is anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think that was very important, um, a very important experience. Um, and yeah, it was young though. And then I then got a part when I was 15. They allowed me to audition for throughout my junior and senior year of high school for different movies and I got a part um, in this movie, October Sky, mm-hmm. when I was 15. And I'd already gotten to college, so they allowed me to go make this movie for my <laughs> second semester of my senior year of, of high school. Okay. So that explains why you're not in City Slickers 2, then. I was in City Slickers 2. I were. was cut out. Oh, no! Yes. I was... It was a great... I was in one scene. Yeah, <laughs> I was in one scene, and it was cut out, unfortunately. It's a bummer. Maybe maybe it's on the DVD extras. <laughs> but I do have a really cool poster that Billy Crystal signed to me that he said, thank you so much for letting me be in your first movie, uh-huh. is what he wrote oh, me on oh, the poster, nice. which is super cool. Um, and he was prophetic. So yeah. there you go. That's pretty cool. And in a weird way, uh, people who've been associated with your career are sort of gravitating towards London at the moment uh, because Billy Crystal's in next week. No Ang Lee is in next week. No way. And we had Mike Newell in this uh, very wow. room uh, mm. last week as well. So, wow. Yeah. 
It's interesting. You seem to be the center of the universe at the moment. <laughs> I, well, that's a dangerous thought. Um, <laughs> Again, you can talk to my 10-year-old self, and I'm sure he thought that. But um, I, I think it's a small world. Yeah. That's for sure. It's, it's a small world. And I've, I've, what's really interesting is being in London, Is people have asked me, you know, do you really love being here? And I realize I've worked with half of the directors that I've worked with in my career are all British. And um, I don't know what it is with me in British culture, but I just, I, I love it. And they, I like working with me, thank God, because, you know, <laughs> I get to keep working, at least I did. So, I mean, I, I it's a small world. It's a small world. You get, yeah. I guess you get to see that, you know, um, as you are lucky enough to do more work. I'm sure you feel that way in, in your profession, too. You just, it's in all of our professions, it is. Oh, every, right. for me, every day is a blessing. Want <laughs> 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 to face the blank page and no idea how to fill it. You make it sound like someone's <laughs> taking out a hit on you. <laughs> <laughs> just one more day. Just that's all I ask for. Just one more day. You yeah. live in It's not quite as dangerous as being a cop in LA, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's up there. Um, I got your sex, Chris. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a beautiful um, moment. I'm so glad to be a part of it, you guys. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks, man. Phil's got lovely coffee as well, which is nice. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to ask about the directors you've worked with if you could name one that you've learned the most from who would it be because you've, you've you've had some corkers over the years I would say I've learned so much from all of them um, and I don't like to take anyone sort of out of the process because I've learned so much I would say the m- person I've learned the most from was David Fincher mm. yeah um, we made Zodiac um, the movie that we could have made five end of watches out of. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. No, I really did. I, you know, he was, he's, he's tough. And, um, I think the process of working with him was such a massive learning lesson for me, you know, just, um, and what I learned from it particularly was that director is King, you know, yeah, and that, that you, everything that you do, you do for them and their vision and the movie that they want to make and the story that they want to tell and that you are a part of that and that um that was it was such a turn particularly for someone who was like you know 26 years old at the time and having had like you said worked with so many you know amazing talents and directors at that point i think i think it really grounded me in a way um taught me this massive lesson about what being an actor was particularly in movies which was that you service the director and you service their vision and you do everything you can to try and surprise them and bring them um to a place that they didn't even think that the material could be brought to um and if you succeed in even just matching what their vision is Mm. that's a success but if you can go beyond that then that's a triumph you know so that's the the probably from any director that's the biggest thing that I learned but I also you know I mean working with Sam Mendes was probably as an actor one of the most fulfilling experiences that I've had so far and working with Ang Lee was extraordinary I mean in a way that is sort of almost inexplicable because it was an experience mm. it wasn't even something that I could say was something specific it was a world that was created an environment a space an intimacy that we were sort of we could walk into and be our you know uh, most intimate selves mm. um, I think you know I could I could, it, it runs the gamut you know I mean I loved working with Duncan Jones you know mm. um, because Duncan was you know he allowed 
for uh, collaboration in this way of my mind and his mind and we became real buddies when we were making the movie and um, I just think he's a really incredible filmmaker I mean every one of them in one way or another but I think a life and then ultimately David Ayer you know David was you know he threw me into the world into the world in a way that I've never seen before and I will never be the same because of my experience with him Mm -hmm. I can say that about every experience I've had in my life but I can say about him that I saw a side of the world that I don't think many people do see and it was really and I've said this many times but it changed my life but it also it really made me see the world in a way that um I never seen it before and I think that's what being an actor is so that's what you do it for in my opinion is to see the world in a way that you never would have and you get led into people's worlds that some people don't get the opportunity to see and so David gave me that but most of all penultimate I would say was Fincher yeah uh, I think we got to let you go now Jake but uh, I was just going to I was just going to say that you you mentioned that you've been you've met End of Watch at a good time in each of your lives. <laughs> yeah. You're now seeing other movies. Yeah, <laughs> ready to move on to what's what's on the cards at the moment. I mean, you're obviously acting on stage. You've been on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. I just finished a movie in um, the end of July with uh, this director Denis Villeneuve, mm-hmm. who directed a movie called Ensemble. Um, mm. And it's, it's called An Enemy, the movie that we made. Um, and I play two two roles in that movie. Um, I play a history teacher and an actor, uh, ironically, and uh, they meet each other. Um, and it's a, it's sort of a story about um, reconciling one of them is having an affair and one of them is married with a wife who's pregnant and mm-hmm. reconciling those parts of yourself, particularly uh, as a man specifically, um, in order to make a commitment to life and to, you know, uh, being a part of a family and marriage and that's a, it's a very trippy movie it's like the trippiest movie I've made <laughs> that's saying say. something and that, is, that, saying, made Donnie that is definitely saying something <laughs> having made Donnie Darko and then um, we're about to I'm about to go work with Denis again on a movie called Prisoners oh, yeah. um, and he's directing that again so this is the, this is the first time I've ever l- literally worked with the same director yeah, twice in say. a row um, I've got to be honest. I've actually I I saw him on Sunday and I interviewed him. Yeah. And I think I might have called him Dennis Villeneuve. <laughs> when you said Denis, I was just like, yeah, oh, man. fresh new director. You're like Incendies, <laughs> which is whatever. No, but by the way, no, he's, so that's a great movie. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he's a wonderful man. And and ultimately, the reason why I want to work with him again, like we've been talking about, is that I've learned so much from him and yeah. and continue to, and I don't want to stop. So fantastic. Well, Jake, yeah. wish, wish you all the best. Uh, is this coming off at any point the beard for it's gonna I had this beard for Denis in his last movie and I'm gonna take it off for the next one it looks like but you know what never say never it's a good beard so I might be around that's a good beard thanks man cheers man thanks a lot thank you what a lovely chap that Jake Gyllenhaal probably yeah. is um, I really enjoyed meeting him in two days time and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast join us next week for more film related fun where we'll be joined by a triumvirate of interviewees of all goes well including Martin Madonna and Sam Rockwell from Seven Psychopaths Steve Arum and Alice Lowe from Sightseers and Mark Herbert and Mary Burke two brilliant producers celebrating the 10th anniversary of the wonderful Warp Films until then it's goodbye from Helen goodbye it's goodbye from Phil goodbye it's goodbye from Ali Goodbye. <laughs> and of course, it's goodbye for me. I'm off now to do some more uncomfortable staring. I think that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs>